Evans, and this is Disrupt the Media, a podcast about disability in the media. So today we have a good friend of mine. She is a multimedia artist, closed captioner, audio describer, and activist, and it's Cheryl Green. Hey, Cheryl, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. Hi, Dominic. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, You know, this has been a podcast we've been trying to make happen for a couple months now. Yeah, I'm really glad. Thank you for making time to have me on. Well, I'm so glad to finally be able to connect and talk to you a little bit about the film work that you've been doing and also, uh, you know, the work you've done for disability in general. Yay! (laughs) So, um, you actually um, were the winner of the film contest that my company did last year. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And you won a thousand dollars and some (laughs) software. I was kind of jealous, you know, um, because I can't enter, so I can't get any of these amazing prizes. Oh. (laughs) I, um, you know, when I do documentary film, I mean, it's pretty standard not to pay the people who you're interviewing for your documentary films. But this is my first time to win an award or to win a prize. And so I shared the prize money with the people who are in my film because um, wow. it just it just it just felt important to me to to be able to do that. I mean, isn't that part of the purpose of this festival and contest is is addressing bias, institutional bias. Well, that is the focus, addressing bias. And one of the biases we tend to have is that you should do stuff for me for free just because I want you to. And the three people who were in my film last year, they all actually, they have employment, they have paid work, but, you know, with the caps that you have because of receiving benefits, they they can't climb corporate ladders and, and get gigantic paychecks and still maintain their health care and benefits. But also, I, I I can't speak for them, but I don't know if they'd want to climb to the top of some white collar corporate ladder, even if even if they could. And even if there were accessible jobs like that. Um, right. I've sort of tucked myself into a circle here. But the point being that I wanted to show how much I valued what they gave in the film. And so, yeah, I split that prize money with them and um, hopefully they got some nice stuff or a nice meal or something. Yeah. Wow. That's so great. And you had some really great people in your film. Um, You know, Kirzy, who is um, so lovely, you know, (laughs) just a lovely person, you know, and you had, you know, amazing cats, you know, they kind (laughs) of stole the show from everybody. You know, I was going for realism. And I really feel like the two cats and the dog, the fact that they stole the show, I mean, they're just, it's just it's just realistic. And it's the way I mean, really, me as a filmmaker, but also the three people in the film, Eric, Yulia and Kiersey, I think all of us would agree that the most important thing in life is that these animals are coddled and cared for and happy and warm and comfortable. And we are very happy in our role as their, um, you know, as their staff. Um, so it, oh, definitely. It's, not, 
I didn't go into it planning to do that. But then when I realized that they all had animals and I realized that this is a really nice way in, um, it's an indirect way in to talk about disabled people's humanity is by showing just the beauty of everyday life in a non-inspiring, non-inspiration porn way. Yeah. Um, and well, I think it also I think it also addresses the idea of institutional bias in that um, when I've written about your film, um, which is called In My Home, th- this is something that Kiersey, who was actually institutionalized when she was younger, couldn't have. You know, these pets are not only just valued family members, they're a symbol that this is freedom, that you're able to have a pet if you are are um, not institutionalized, whereas if you're living in a nursing home or other setting, you're not going to be able to really do things like determine what time to go to bed, what you have to eat sometimes, or, you know, to have a pet even. And I think the, the cats are so important in that symbolism. Oh, yeah. I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah. And I think there's also this bias that disabled people receive care. First of all, that that's all you do. (laughs) That's your full time role in life. Right. But also that also that you can't give care, that you can't give love, that you can't be there for someone else. And whether it's human or non-human, disabled people are not any different in the capacity to care for each other or someone else. And and I think that the animals symbolize that as well. And also really, it's really important to me to honor the role that animals play in people's emotional well-being and just expression of love. I mean, I am such a cat person. Like somebody recently referred to me as being part cat. And I thought, I don't, I don't think I've ever gotten a nicer compliment from anyone. So she also called me trash panda, which I thought was really cute because um, I like calling raccoons trash pandas. And I like the sound. Wait, what is that? I can't remember. It's not alliteration. I can't remember what it's called when the vowels match. But yeah, oh, I like the sound uh-huh. of trash panda. So I thought that was, I, I don't know. I just like anything that refers back to animals. Is that it? Well, alliteration is kind of like that, but is it like, no, not onomatopoeia. What is that where, I know what you're talking about, where all the beginning sounds are, you know, similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sad and disappointed because I'm such a linguistics geek. I can't think of it. Maybe it's illusion. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I like the sound Somebody of it. knows the what it is. Part, yeah, Somebody's the important gonna... part being that. You know, I really I value people, I value animals and I value relationships that we have with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an important connection, especially for those of us who are disabled. Um, you know, animals for so many of us are, like you said, emotionally comforting. And for some of us, they actually serve a bigger purpose because a lot of us have uh, helper animals, not just physically disabled people, but um, people that have other needs, you know, like seizures or even emotional support. Um, So whether you have your dog or cat or other animal for those 
those reasons for help and assistance or whatnot, I think all animals kind of emotionally support their humans, uh, regardless of their disabled, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm doing a series on my podcast about um, the relationship of disabled people and animals. So I have one episode that was out last year. I'll just back up and say um, I had a podcast for five years and it just ended, but I started a new one. I didn't miss a beat, but it means that some of those older episodes that I want to still be out there, I'm going to have to re-release them as as fancy encore presentations. But so I did one last year that I'll re-release um, about Colleen Connor, who is blind, and she's one of my audio description teachers, and she got a brand new uh, service dog. And so I have a an episode that's a basically an interview and storytelling with Colleen and her dog is in the interview and just kind of some magical things happen between the two of them while I just had my microphone on them. Um, And so that dog plays a really, a a role that's familiar to a lot of people. I mean, the dog is from the Seeing Eye Institute of all dog training places. So this is a guide dog for the blind. Um, But then I also interviewed, I haven't finished editing, but I interviewed Brandon Scarth, who's in my feature length documentary. He just got a service dog and Brandon has um, full sight. So this is a dog who I can't exactly figure out what the dog does. So it's not a guide dog, but Chutney is a service dog and is a really important part of Brandon's life. And so I interviewed Brandon and Chutney and that will come out sometime this year. And I'm hoping to do more of these human animal storytelling pieces. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Animals are so great. I'm, I like dogs and cats, but I'm definitely a dog person and I see myself getting uh, another dog soon. Um, We have a little Shih Tzu, but I'm thinking we'll probably get a lab um, in the next year or so. Mm. Yeah. Um, And, and we've had cats, but our last cat, we moved um, and I moved to Ohio for school and then my mother-in-law was going to move down later to join us. Um, And while we were in between states, our cat must have got confused because we weren't there and she ran away. So we don't know if she was trying to look for us or whatnot, but she managed to get out of the house and we never saw her again. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's sad, but I'm, I'm, I'm betting she just went and found a new family. You know, they'll do that like, okay, well, I'll live here now. I've heard of this happening. So hopefully that happened. Yeah. And she didn't know where we moved, you know, because she'd never been down to Ohio. So we think she's somewhere in Michigan, you know, not sure where we went or whatnot. So. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, she was she was a fun cat. She used to sit on my shoulders, like on my chest, you know, right where my shoulders are and just lay and be like, this is, you know, my perch, you know, on my wheelchair so she could get the best view as I drove around. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So you call yourself a multimedia artist. What do you see that kind of entailing? Because I feel like multimedia is this new concept that we're kind of defining as the Internet and technology expand. That's a good question. Um, 
I I think I'm more multimedia artist in in the sort of old school definition of I make art in a bunch of different mediums. So I I think you might be hinting at things like transmedia, which I'm really excited by, but also terrified and couldn't do on my own where you've got a documentary film, but then there's all these other components and pieces that live online and people interact with them differently. I can't even wrap my head around it. It frightens me. And again, I, I do everything solo. There's no way I could handle it. But so, I mean, I, I make films. I have a podcast. I'm a blogger. And I think, and I used to do dance. I, I, I used to do a bunch of um, danceability and mixed abilities dance. When I identified as non-disabled is when I first got into um, uh, dance in the disability community. So I'm, I'm really living in this digital world right now. I just, I, I can't, I don't know. I just don't want to dance anymore. So I used to do a lot more live performance than I do anymore. That seems like a natural evolution because I also was a performer for 20 years. Yeah. And now I'm behind the camera. Oh, wow. What were, what, what were your, what, uh, will you ask the question for me? Because it's not what was I primarily mouth. doing? Yeah, I was. <laughs> yes. I was a singer, an actor, primarily musical theater and opera. Stop musical theater! Just stop! Oh my gosh, what were you in? Um, I was the narrator in Joseph. I was Aunt M in The Wizard of Oz. Um, I was Doctor Emma Bruckner in The Normal Heart. Um, an amazing role for a disabled actor. I was so angry when Julia Roberts was cast in that role, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, because it, it's such, the role has nothing to do with disability. It's about this doctor who just happens to be a wheelchair user. And it was based on a real person that Larry Kramer, who wrote The Normal Heart, knew um, this real disabled researcher who used a wheelchair. And um, in the play, she's going to the CDC to... Um, try to convince them to declare the AIDS epidemic an epidemic in the 1980s, which they didn't want to do because they considered it a gay disease. Right, right. That's so interesting because, well, it's interesting for many different reasons, um, but something that's standing out to me is what you said about the movie or the play. The piece was not about disability, but there was a primary character who happened to have a disability. Right. I think I'm with you that that is kind of an ideal position to be in where where we could get to a point where if someone has a disability, you don't have to explain it. Right. Why on earth would you be, um, you know, talking to a person in a wheelchair? Oh, well, their story of the wheelchair is I mean, it is so distracting and it is so centering of non-disabled people as the primary audience, it just... Right. Uh, it, it's so distracting. But here's the thing I want to say. Okay, can I get can I get um, edgy now? No, go for it. Go for it. Okay. I didn't mean to ask it in a way that makes it sound like you said don't be edgy, but now no, you're no. edgy. Okay. Um, and that is that I went to a disability studies conference at UCLA last year. And there was a panel about writing 
disabled characters for fiction, which the panel ended up being not actually about that. But it was I mean, it was it was in that realm. And somebody somebody on the panel said, and this is a non-disabled person, said the best the best representation of disability is when it's not when it's never about the disability or and to me the difference might not be apparent to non-disabled people but and it's a subtle difference but to me there's a big difference in saying let's have a media landscape where anybody can audition for whatever role and so Maybe a non-disabled person plays a disabled character and it's fine because there's all these disabled actors playing, not, you know, characters who were written to be non-disabled or just wasn't specified or whatever. You know, if we had balance, it, it would be a different story. But when people, when non-disabled or disabled people say the best representation is when you don't make the story about disability, I get pretty upset because... Yeah. It's about that is about erasing disability. Right. This will be good if we don't ever have to talk about it. And I got super frustrated and I remain super frustrated and I'm always super frustrated when the goal is to erase disability. Right. Right. Where. Yeah. Whereas what you were talking about was this is simply one aspect of the character's life. Right. But this particular story is about a different topic. So right. whatever. Well, and if you think about it, AIDS, um, people with AIDS um, can consider themselves disabled or they have access needs that make them technically disabled. So this entire story is about disability, but it's in a completely different way. And I think also when you have someone like me playing this role, it doesn't matter that it's not about disability because the character is still a disabled character simply because there's a disabled person playing that role. I don't have to act disabled because it's already there. You know what I mean? Whereas Julia Roberts has to worry about not moving her body and this and that and whatever and can't really focus on the other stuff which the story is actually about. That And, and see, that's the thing for me about... Um, I really also don't like when people say everybody should just get to audition for any role. The more I've learned about disability in film, the more that I support disabled people playing disabled roles for a series of reasons. And one of those is just what I said. You don't have to act disabled. You just are. And I feel like being a disabled character isn't about acting. It's about a state of being. You are disabled, you know, Um no matter what I do, if I'm sitting not in my wheelchair, I'm still disabled, you know, um, and everything I do is as a disabled person, whether it has to do with disability or not, just because that's a part of me. So how do we say non-disabled people can do that? You know, um, I, I don't really see it as something you can act. So so for me, you know, and when. A non-disabled person says the best thing about 
you know, a role, the best roles are the ones where it's not about disability. I get that on some level, but we we have to find a happy medium between some stories are going to be about disability because disability does affect our lives, but some not all stories. Our life is not all about our disability. Which, right. Yeah. And I think I think the subtlety and the balance is what's lost right. because and especially to say the best representation will be where you don't focus on the disability like on what topic? Like, do right. we have to use that rule for documentaries, too? I mean, it's just ludicrous. But, um, oh, shoot. What was I going to say? Can you get in my brain and <laughs> find that little thought train that just derailed? Um, I found it. Oh, good. So one thing that happens when we say, you know, don't focus on the disability, that's code for make it as non-disabled seeming as possible. That's what the problem is with it. When non-disabled people say, just don't make your representation about disability. Um, it, it's, they're not saying, go ahead and amplify some other part of your lived experience. They're saying, oh, disability, it's just like your weakness or your flaw. Don't focus on your flaws. Focus on your good qualities. It's so reductionist. It doesn't make any actual sense in the lived reality of disability? Yes, some, for some people, sure. Some people do say, I have an impairment that makes me less able and I wish I didn't have it. I mean, there's there's room for, for this variety of perspectives, but the problem for me is this demand is coded language for we don't want to see it, don't talk about it, don't bring it up. But then that means we can't accommodate for it. We can't celebrate it. And we can't talk about what the lived reality really brings to your life, how it informs your perspective, how it makes you the well-rounded person that you are. And I just find it so demeaning and condescending. And, you know, at this very same conference, the day before I gave a co-presentation with my friend A.J. Murray, who is a phenomenal um, actor. Yeah. Yes. You know, A.J. is the best. He's so great. Yeah. And and I'm going to sort of try to repeat something that he said in his portion of the presentation. And it was on this very topic. Don't. Would you. He gave a couple of examples. And I think one of them was, would you ask to re like let's reboot the Mary Tyler Moore show but never talk about issues of being a woman never talk about feminism or or being female in the workplace right no and i think he mentioned Lena Dunham's show girls okay let's do that but never talk about being a woman like it is it it's doesn't make any sense that the best way to show off some part of yourself is to silence it and pretend it's not there right and I'm really, frankly, very tired of of this demand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that I don't think non-disabled people realize that we live in an able normative world. And what I mean by that is that the able is normative is the idea that that to be non-disabled is what's normative and we want to aspire for that so non or for uh, sorry so disabled people 
should aspire to that. We should want to be non-disabled people. And I hear all the time when I talk about saying I'm proud to be disabled. I don't mind being disabled. I posted on Twitter the other day that I don't care if I ever walk again. And people were just like stunned by that because, you know, um, for me, walking was hard. It was hard and not like, you know, the kind of hard, oh, you got to get through it hard. It was like physically limiting hard, as in it made my life worse. It made my life harder. I don't expend as much energy. Um, I don't fall and get hurt all the time. You know, I have more that I can do with a wheelchair. So why would I want to go back to where it's painful and harmful and, you know, um, I... And why should I want to say, well, I just want to have this eradicated completely because I feel like my view has shaped who I am, you know, and I don't think I'd be the same person. I don't think I would be as compassionate or um, willing to stand up for what I believe in if I wasn't disabled. So why would I want to remove what I feel is a very positive part of myself? And that's what our society demands of us. Right, right. And I'll tell you, it's so it's so prevalent. So I do really cross disability work. That is my goal. And I think that um, I think that I achieved that. But my early work was only about people with traumatic brain injuries. Sometimes, you know, if you had a stroke, you could come in. That's fine. I'll share your work. But it was primarily traumatic brain injury. And I'll just call it TBI for short. Right. Partly because I hate saying the word traumatic over and over. But anyway, um, but the thing in the TBI media world, well, I could spend five hours here telling you the things I don't like about TBI media. But um, one of the one of the overarching narratives is that after a TBI, your job is to get better and get normal. And I have no problem with people wanting to get better or actually getting better. I have no problem with that. But it is a demand that is placed on people to such an extreme degree. And then you're measured against each other. And there's this whole competition. And, oh, well, you've recovered quite well. Oh, that person isn't really putting enough effort into it. They haven't, you know, they haven't recovered as well. So they're not trying. They're not doing these things right. And, you know, I I tried to explain to somebody one time that, Sometimes you can have a a TBI that's kind of shallow. It doesn't really injure that many parts of your brain. And some people have a very deep injury. And the guy just said, oh, you mean deep, like psychologically, like it feels deep. I said, no, dude, literally deep, literally lots of brain cells getting injured. Yeah. Then they have more impairment and they're not going to necessarily recover maybe as well as I did. And I had... I I had shallower injuries. So there's all this competition and pressure, unending pressure comes from doctors, comes from rehab clinicians, but it also comes from the media that you see around TBI. The pressure is to be normal. And if you can't, fine. Then you call your life the new normal, which I find almost as aggravating as just saying normal. And there's not, 
room to breathe in there and say, you know what, I got these impairments and I'm rocking it and it's fine. And there is such a divide. The TBI community is pretty much not involved in disability rights for the most part. And it's absolutely not involved in disability justice. I mean, forget it. There are so few people out there who whose work I can find who even utter the phrase disability justice and TBI in the same sentence. And I feel like what happens is there's these, it's the hero's journey. You know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. It's the, you know, I had it all. I lost it all in a TBI and look how inspiring and miraculous my recovery is now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm just out here tearing my hair out. I'm like, Look at the statistics who for who recovers the best. Take a wild guess, Dominic. <laughs> who recovers the best from a TBI? Guess which ethnic or racial group statistically has the best recovery? Probably white people because they have better resources. Yes, white people. If you're just looking at statistics and research and you're white... You are most likely, all other things being equal, which I know they're not, you're going to have a better recovery. Finances, if you are middle class or higher, um, if you are an English speaker, fluent English speaker, and especially if you're a native English speaker. But these things around your race and ethnicity, your finances, whether you have housing already and you stay in your housing, whether you have family or close friends or significant other who are providing support, access to transportation, these play such a spectacularly huge role in just what kind of recovery trajectory someone might have. But you go look at the TBI media, even stuff that was made from the TBI community, and it's all about, you know, cut out sugar and and eat paleo and get eight hours of sleep every night. Like you listen, if you are incarcerated or houseless, yeah, how are you going to eat paleo and sleep eight hours every night? Like it is. And there are so many people who are incarcerated and or houseless or go in between the two. The number of people with a TBI in their history in those groups is enormous. Wow. And I just like, this is why I made the documentary that I made. I am absolutely beyond what is it um i'm i'm beyond being at my wits end with these narratives of i got better only because of divine intervention or i got better only because i tried so hard and not having the acknowledgement of all these advantages and points of privilege and access right you got better because you're white privilege is really what, what should be said, you know. Um, I mean, that's true of my community as well, uh, the neuromuscular disability community. I've had so many conversations with Black disabled people who have neuromuscular disabilities. And, you know, we've had very frank conversations about how when I went to camp, I only had one non-white friend who was at camp. One, you know, out of all the cabins, one black girl. 
And she came for like one or two years. And, you know, I don't know if racism played a role. I didn't see it personally, but, you know, maybe it felt lonely being the only non-white person at camp. And, you know, I had to confront the fact that my community, um, a lot of black children with forms of muscular dystrophy and other neuromuscular disabilities don't get the same medical treatment. Even with the free clinic access, you know, that was available, especially when I was a kid, um, you know, MDAs do it a lot less these days, you know, so if you're not getting the wheelchair, the therapies, the nursing care, the, you know, whatever you need that a lot of white families have access access to, you know, um, it's not just affecting the treatment options available, but disabled people are actually dying. And I've had friends in this community that are Black say, you know, we're not here, you don't see us because a lot of us are dead. And that, you know, and it, what you're saying about the TBI community just seems so kind of reflective of what we see in disability in general, where the people that are getting better access to care, we we all need better care. Care is not where it needs to be, but we're getting better access if we're white, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're fighting over crumbs, but only certain people get access to the crumbs, you know? Right. So. So so it's not fair that we're fighting over crumbs, but, you know, the people that aren't getting anything, they would be grateful for the crumbs, you know. So um, I feel like for those of us who are white and marginalized, we need to both consider ourselves lucky, but also keep fighting for better because, you know, um, what we have is is better than a lot of the other people in our community who might not have the same privileges to access we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've done a lot of work with um, Leroy Moore since we're talking about race and <laughs> disability. Yeah. He's so great. I I just absolutely love working for Leroy. So the really all I. What I do with Leroy is I transcribe his interviews um, that will be used for print. Sometimes the audio is released, too. And then I make closed captions for um, some music videos, but also just different kind of video pieces that he makes. And, you know, sometimes I just donate. A lot of times I donate that service. Um, I value donating both my money and my services to black led organizations, organizations yeah. that um, directly support uh, black communities and communities of color, especially disabled. There are a few non black disability organizations that I also support, you know, either f- with a donation or by doing free captioning or other access services. Uh, but much more so focus on Black-led organizations. But Leroy and I did this thing several years ago with uh, my friend Jackie Pilgrim. And this documentary came out called Best Kept Secret. And it was supposedly about this one self-contained transition classroom. It was all young men of color in that 17 to 21-year-old category where 
They're about to leave the public school system and essentially be dropped. The film was supposed to be about them, but really the film was about the te- their teacher, Janet. I think her name was Janet. It's been years. Um, and she really went uh, absolutely above and beyond to 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 really work with these students. And then at the end of the school day, she was in her car driving all over the city looking for places where she could recommend these students go once they left public school. What are you going to do with your life? And so um, they focused on these six young men who were all autistic and this teacher. The movie had a lot of strong points, but then somebody on PBS interviewed the two producers, the two white producers of the film. And that interview was so amazingly ableist, amazingly racist and classist. Jackie and I talked about it, Leroy and I, and the three of us got together. We did a Google Hangout. You know, it's an hour long video. It's just us basically tearing it apart. And we say some of the things that, you know, were positive about the film from that the three of us got from it, from our very different perspectives. Jackie is also black. She's autistic. Her son is a black autistic young man. And then Leroy could speak from the perspective of a black disabled man right. um, and his relationship to his father. And, and I spoke from the perspective of a filmmaker who is interested in, in really taking a critical viewpoint of documentaries on any topic, really. The, the the messaging and the language around the film, you know, on the website, it was so condescending. Um, but there was a lot that Jackie and Leroy could talk about around the white savior attitude that these non-disabled filmmakers had. And the thing that s- stuck with me, I mean, it's been several years since we did this, so I just can't remember most of it. But the thing that stuck with me was we've got this classroom with these six young men who are about to (laughs) just have nothing. And when they were being interviewed, the interviewer asked, you know, what's the takeaway from the film? And one of the producers said, the takeaway from the film is that you may think you don't have autism in your life or know anybody with autism, but really we all do in some way. And I was like, that's your flipping takeaway from this movie. Wow. Is that you know someone with autism? This film showed that this woman was working unbelievable numbers of hours, and you know she was not being paid. When, once the school day ended and she's driving around trying to find services and placements, she's not getting paid for this. She is a black woman. She's got all these black students and students of color. And she's going around and she's finding that the service, the post-transition services for white kids, or excuse me, white young adults might include arts programs, music programs, all these things. What was available to her students was janitorial jobs. Wow. Fast food. Wow. The divide was undeniable. It's just, it's a documentary. It's right out there for you to see it. And the, what these producers take away is autism touches all of us. I mean, I was through How the How does that even make sense to, to what? Uh. Well, so here's, so here's how it makes sense is that she said at the beginning and You've heard this a million times, Dominic. She said at the beginning, when we started making this film, I didn't know anybody with autism. Wow. And now I realize that there are 
autism. There are people with autism in my life. I just didn't know before. And so not only do you have your, as Jackie put it, great white savior on your great white savior horse, but you think that you are qualified to make a film about a community you have nothing in common with just because you have the finances and the interest. And this is not okay. This entitlement to parachute into a classroom and a community that you have nothing in common with and say, I am the filmmaker to tell your story because I'm the one with the funds. I'm sorry, dish your funds over to somebody else or partner with them or you take you'd you be assistant director to somebody who's already in that community who right. can drive the film and drive the creative decisions and frankly not go on PBS and say asinine condescending crap the way you did. So so we have a Google chat. And I captioned it and everything. And it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's gotten five views or something. I don't keep track. But but that was that was the first time I'd ever did anything with Leroy, I think. And it was a, a tremendous experience for me. And getting to transcribe his interviews, they're unedited audio. I'm hearing stuff before anybody else does. I'm hearing these wow. interviews with all these black disabled artists and creators. And it's exciting to hear it before anyone else does. But because I'm doing the unedited interviews, I'm hearing stuff that maybe no one else will ever hear. And it is an ex- such an exciting job being a captioner and a transcriptionist because I also, with transcription, I might only listen to things once. But when I caption something, I watch the entire thing a minimum of four times. I can dig into the content in a way... I never would if I were just an audience member. Then I just learn so much more. Yeah, it's really fun. I wish that I was capable of typing enough for that because it sounds like fascinating that you get these unedited view, unedited view. Ugh, gosh, I can't speak today. Unedited views of <laughs> podcasts, you know. Um, I can't imagine what Steve thinks when he's editing our stuff because of, you know, all the fun, um, you know, behind the scenes moments that sometimes he won't cut them out. I think it's his job to make me look um, like a clown or something because he will just leave every he'll probably leave me trying to say unedited in just to, um, you know, get some laughs out of the audience, you know. Totally, totally. Yeah, but all those little tidbits you get to hear that other people are never going to know, things that were spoken about in between recording or, you know, whatnot. And and that's the most exciting part about doing podcasts and filmmaking is not just, you know, you make this great project, but you're working with these people. And if you can truly find collaboration in whatever you're doing, Doing, you form these bonds and you share these stories that are never going to, you know, happen again and make these connections. So, right, right. So my current podcast is is more about storytelling and sound design and sort of being artsy. But my former podcast was all interviews similar to yours in format. It was just these, you know, 45 or hour minute long conversations and interviews. And in my practice, I sent people the questions that I was going to ask them before the interview. Yeah. Not only so that they could preview it, but I said, if, if you don't like any of these questions, delete them. If you have 
questions you would like me to ask, add those in there. And if I'm not asking it in a way that you're comfortable with, just edit this question and write it out so that when I ask it, you will give the best answer that you want to give. And, you know, most people would say, oh, looks great. That's fine. But sometimes I would have people say like, whoa, this is not the angle I'm going for. Wow. Um, ask it in this way. And listen, like, can you only imagine what a gift that is to know that then when you go in and ask it, you're going to ask the kind of question that they want to be asked? Yeah. You know, I should probably do that. But um, of course, for this show, we're kind of going for conversation. You know, it's like we're not having a formal interview. I just see these as conversations with other disabled people. So wherever we end up going. um, But I think for more formal interviews, that's such a great idea to have a question and answer. um, And that way people can determine what what they're asking. I hope I'm not asking any questions that people are like, whoa, no, don't ask that. Um, <laughs> but um, but I think the fact that your podcast is so conversation based and I always feel that when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is totally not an interview. This is so relaxed and conversational. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a different beast. My old podcast, it was so much more formal like that. And, and I felt obligated to to do this research on people's work and try to ask them. And I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you this because I know I'm going to tell you a story about a person and I know they're not going to hear this podcast, but you know what, if they do fine. So um, (laughs) I got interviewed recently for a TBI specific podcast. And I told the person, I don't like to tell my story of how I got the injury and what rehab I did. It doesn't interest me to tell that story. I'm more interested, like I was saying to you, I'm more interested in talking about the number of people who are incarcerated with a TBI. I'm interested in talking about um, um, the ro- the way that TBI intersects with intimate partner violence and domestic violence and all- right. so, so many things like this. Oh, even the arts. It doesn't always have to be like really scary, difficult, tense stuff. It can also be, I love talking about the arts. Um, But when we got there, all the questions were, so how did it happen? What was your rehab? What rehab worked the best and made you feel better? Um, All like, it was an hour of this. And I, you know, that whole uh, fight or flight response. And then researchers finally added in, there's also a freeze response that people feel. And then the other one is submit, right? You roll over, put your tail between your legs and show your tummy. And you're just like, I'm sorry for existing. I won't do it again, whatever it is, you know, like little puppies, how they do that. Right. Yeah. That's what I do. I go into submit mode and I don't even, I can't even recognize it. So this person asked all these questions where I'm telling all these personal details that are traumatizing. Right. Um, because that's the culture. That's TBI culture. Hi, my name is Cheryl. On such and such a date, I had such and such a wreck. And here's what part of my brain and here's stitches. And like, all it's gruesome. Meeting a person with TBI generally is going to have a gruesome story with it. And it's just a part of the culture that I'm uncomfortable with and I don't like. But um, I answered all the questions. And then I transcribe the podcast because I'm like, you know, you can share this podcast, but I'm not sharing it unless it's transcribed. So I volunteered. I transcribed it. And as I'm typing it out, I'm like, oh, my gosh, look what I did. 
look what I did. I went into submit mode. I answered all these questions that, number one, I said I wasn't going to. Number two, I said I didn't want to. And number three, I have literally no interest in talking about these things. And if this person had, say, I don't know, gone to my blog and looked at any randomly selected three posts, you would see that this is not the stuff that I talk about. And yet, I, here I come and I'm expected to talk about what you, the host, want to talk about. Right. Why can't the guest have any say in what the... Anyway, I never shared it. I typed, I typed the whole thing up, made it a screen reader accessible PDF and all that jazz, but I can't share it because I am not interested. It does nothing for me. And I'm adding to this white noise, this whole background rushing noise of telling traumatic, traumatizing stories, gruesome medical details, and then just basically saying, that's all you need to know about me. Yeah. You need to know my impairments. You need to know how much it hurt and you need to know who fixed it and made me better. And I was just, I was just beside myself with disbelief that I spent that hour doing that when I I don't know. I had higher hopes for myself, but, you know, you know, we get into these situations, you know, um, I feel like I've told my story of how I how I'm disabled so many times that it just kind of spews out now like nothing like it's mindless, you know, been there, done that. And, you know, we do it because society expects us to do it. And, you know, um, don't beat yourself up about it because, I mean, I and I also feel like our community can be very bullying, you know, like we need to we need to talk about our disability and we need to participate in podcasts and um, interviews and anything where we can get our voice out there because there's not enough up about disabilities in general. So we feel compelled to do these things, even if we aren't sure if they completely mesh up with our morals and beliefs and how we see ourselves as disabled people. So, right. yeah. And that's why I am just so just completely honored beyond description to be on your show because oh thank you I, I frankly didn't care one who what questions you might ask me or what topics might come up because I know about you and I know about your work and I know the disability justice perspective that you're coming from the social justice I know your dedication to having conversations that are genuinely intersectional. And so I don't even care what the content is. I know I'm coming into this space where it's is going to is we're going to talk about cats and we're going to talk about this other stuff that is the tougher stuff. And this is why I don't make media that is exclusively TBI oriented, because it's too hard for me to get out of those narratives. Of, yeah. Let me tell you how I got hurt and what an inspiring person I am now. Yeah. And I have nothing wrong with people inspiring one another, but I, I just, I just don't want to make anything inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> I get so mad when people say I'm inspiring because like, <laughs> I mean, I get sometimes they genuinely, genuinely mean they're inspired 
by the fact that I'm doing film and things that like film is very hard, you know, and the work I do is difficult, you know, um, and people are genuinely inspired by that. But inspiration has become such a nasty word that I just don't want to be associated with it in any way. <laughs> Call me something else not inspiring you know right. um call my work fantastical if if you want yeah. you know um spectacular even what about spectacular innovative innovative yeah right. yeah because when people call you inspiring you know that the starting point is so often wow i didn't think someone like you could do anything right. that's why i'm inspired but if we start from a place of look at my innovative work then we can talk about the work and not the low expectations that you had for me. Right. Um, I, I don't know if you saw my little short film that I made many years ago called Your Daily Dosage of Inspiration. Um, I think I've seen that. I've seen your little um, like web series with Caitlin, which <laughs> yeah. was amazing. Um, <laughs> I love the one about the disability sign. Yeah. Y'all, I'm going to post, okay, I'm seriously going to post a URL to these videos because they're hilarious. Oh, thank you. You know what? We filmed four of those and I only edited the two and, um, well, maybe we filmed three. I can't remember, but, um, I never finished editing the other ones and then Caitlin moved out of town. But before we did those, um, very special episodes, um, I had this, this pretty cheap, fairly crappy um, Android-based tablet with a pretty crappy camera. Um, and I had a decent microphone and we filmed your daily dosage of inspiration yeah. a couple years before that. And and then this film, I mean, it's gotten more attention than any of my serious work. It's gotten more attention than any of my work that was filmed on a real video camera with like real video gear after I took film classes. Yeah. This little dinky old thing and the captions that I made this is before I knew how to make captions the captions are terrible I mean they're accurate but you know it's like we you see people who who haven't learned the the conventions of captioning you know there's like 800 words across the screen in one caption um, as opposed to you know just keeping it nice and tight and timed well but um I mean, it's and I still love watching your daily dosage of inspiration. I just Caitlin. Oh, here, OK, here. Let me just say my crowning achievement um, was years ago before the Ouch podcast really was like fully catering to non-disabled people. Did you ever listen to Ouch? I have. Yeah. OK, so back when it was just transitioning from really, really funny into inspiring and and kind of boring right i'm sitting on the number six bus i'm going down the street and i don't remember what they were talking about because you know when you get really emotional you forget what happened right before the moment i'm sitting there on the bus with my with my ipod and i hear the host saying well we found this disabled youtuber caitlin wood from the united states she made wow. this film your daily dosage of inspiration and they played a couple lines of it and i mean tears streaming down my face. Now, they never said my name. Nobody ever contacted me. It didn't lead to anything. I don't even know if they posted the URL. But to be 
just sitting there on the bus listening to this podcast from the UK and hearing Caitlin's voice from this little thing that we made on a whim and filmed in like five minutes. Oh my goodness, Dominic. It, I was like, oh, we made it. Oh, we made it. That's amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, n- nothing ever. I mean, I still like, I don't know if I get even 50 views on any of my videos. I'm excited about that. But it was a really neat moment to to get picked up that way. Um, and to have to have that particular film be honored for the total snarkitude, but also the just like the point we were trying to make. They got the point we wanted to make. And it, that was that was super cute. That's awesome. That is so awesome that you were mentioned on Ouch back in the day. So, yeah. Well, Cheryl Green, we have to wind down. I could talk to you forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. this has been so much fun. And I'm so glad we finally got the chance to talk. And, um, you know, I hope you'll come back again in the future and we can talk further about disability and justice and intersectionality and all of the amazing work that you're doing. Um, Is there anything that you want to tell our listeners about that they can check out or that you're working on currently before we go? Well, I would just say all my work is at my website, whoamitostopit.com. My feature-length documentary film that I have educational distribution through New Day Films. It's called Who Am I to Stop It? Um, Twitter. I have a Twitter. I don't really know how to use Twitter, but at Who Am I to Stop It? And Facebook at Who Am I to Stop It? Um, And my podcast Pigeonhole is also there at whoamitostopit.com. And I just really appreciate getting to talk to you today. And yeah, look forward to more conversations with you, Dominic. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. Now, everyone... As always, remember to subscribe and like our podcast and let us know what you think. The more ratings we get, the higher ratings we get, the greater chance we have of making more podcasts because we can use that towards sponsorship. I'm Dominic Evans for Disrupt the Media. We'll talk to you next time.